Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! I've never won an election in the first round. I've won all of them in the second round. We are going to form good alliances for us to win the election. Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, threatened a coup if he didn't win Sunday's election against leftist former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. While Lula won a plurality of the vote, he did not get 50 percent in the 11-way race. So now they head to a runoff. We'll look at what this could mean for Brazil and the rest of the world with Vijay Prashad just back from Brazil and Professor Noam Chomsky in Brazil right now. What happens in Brazil could be certain to have a large-scale effect on whether these this mildly left social democratic uh, tendency will continue to develop and evolve. That's very important on the international scene as well. Professor Noam Chomsky has co-authored a new book with Vijay Prashad, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. We'll also talk with them about Ukraine. There's got to be pressure on the Biden administration, not only to back off and allow Zelensky and Putin to talk, uh, to allow them to have some kind of peace agreement that's, you know, with dignity for all sides, but also the United States needs to go back to the table with the Russians and talk to them. BJ Prashad and Noam Chomsky for the hour. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Brazil's presidential election is headed to a runoff. In the first round of voting Sunday, Brazil's former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, of the Leftist Workers' Party, won 48 percent of the vote, beating Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, who received 43 percent of the vote. It was a closer result than many projected, and Bolsonaro-backed candidates also performed well in other races. Lula spoke to supporters Sunday night. I've never won an election in the first round. I've won all of them in the second round. All of them. Here in the second round, what's important is the chance to think thoroughly on what you propose for society, to build a network of alliances and supporters before winning, for you to show to the people what will happen and who will win. There is widespread fear in Brazil that Bolsonaro could attempt to stage a coup to stay in power. This has already been the most violent election campaign Brazil has seen in years. Bolsonaro spoke Sunday. We are going to form good alliances for us to win the election. I can't talk of it at the moment. We'll have more on Brazil after headlines.
Ukraine has recaptured the city of Lyman, a key railway hub in eastern Ukraine. Russian troops withdrew from the city Saturday, one day after Russian President Vladimir Putin held a signing ceremony to mark the annexation of the area. According to press accounts, many residents there didn't even know Russia had annexed the area. At the United Nations, Russia vetoed a resolution condemning Moscow's annexation of four regions in Ukraine. Ten nations of the U.N. Security Council supported the resolution. Four nations abstained—China, Gabon, India and Brazil. Ukraine responded to the annexation by accelerating its bid to join NATO. This comes as President Biden signed a spending bill that includes $12 billion in new U.S. military aid for Ukraine, this on top of $54 billion already approved by Congress. In more news on the war, Ukrainian authorities say at least 25 civilians have died in a Russian missile strike on a civilian humanitarian convoy attempting to leave the city of Zaporizhia. Eighty-eight people were reportedly injured. On Friday, Russian President Vladimir Putin gave a major address where he painted the war in Ukraine as an existential conflict for Russia. He accused the United States and its allies of waging a hybrid war against Russia and of attacking the Nord Stream gas pipelines connecting Russia to Germany. The pipelines were ruptured last week in what's widely viewed as an act of sabotage. Sanctions were not enough for the Anglo-Saxons. They moved into sabotage. It is hard to believe that it is a fact that they organized the blast on the Nordstrom International Gas Pipelines, which run along the bottom of the Baltic Sea. They began to destroy the pan-European energy infrastructure. It is clear to everyone who benefits from this. Of course, those who benefit did it. The United States has denied any involvement in the pipeline attack, but on Friday, Secretary of State Tony Blinken acknowledged the development presents a, quote, tremendous opportunity for the United States. And ultimately, um, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus to take away from uh, Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing uh, his uh, imperial designs. The death toll from Hurricane Ian has reached 87 and is continuing to grow amidst a massive search and rescue effort in Florida. About half the deaths occurred in Lee County, which waited until a day before the storm to issue a mandatory evacuation order. President Biden's expected to visit Florida on Wednesday. Today, he'll be in Puerto Rico, where Hurricane Fiona killed 25 people and knocked out power to the entire island. About 14 percent of the island is still without power two weeks after that storm. Sunday marked the 16th day of consecutive protests in Iran following the death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman who died after she was detained by the so-called morality police for allegedly violating Iran's hijab law. According to the Norway-based group Iran Human Rights, 133 people have been killed since the protests began. On Sunday, police fired tear gas and paintballs at student protesters in Tehran. Meanwhile, the Committee to Protect Journalists reports at least 28 journalists and photographers have been arrested covering the protests. In news from the occupied West Bank, hundreds of mourners gathered Friday for the funeral of a seven-year-old Palestinian boy named Rian Suleiman, who suffered a heart attack after being chased by Israeli soldiers. His father, Yasser Suleiman, spoke Friday. 
My son was walking back from school with other pupils. The soldiers were in the area, but there were no clashes. They were chasing students until they reached my home. When they reached my home, they wanted to detain Rian's brothers, my two older sons. When Rian heard about the detaining process, he went to another entrance for our home and was scared. Then I found him dead on the spot. In Indonesia, at least 125 people, including 17 children, were trampled to death or suffocated Saturday at a soccer game in East Java after riot police fired tear gas to prevent fans from reaching the field. It's one of the deadliest incidents in the history of soccer. For the second time this year, a military coup has occurred in the African nation of Burkina Faso. A group of army officers led by Captain Ibrahim Traore seized power Friday, ousting another military officer, Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Demiba, who had led the country since a coup in January. On Saturday, protesters attacked the French embassy, where some had believed the ousted president was hiding. Some supporters of Friday's coup flew Russian flags in the streets while calling for Moscow to help Burkina Faso confront its security crisis. Venezuela's released seven U.S. citizens, including five oil executives, as part of a prisoner swap that saw the United States release two relatives of Venezuelan leader Nicolas Maduro, who had been jailed on drug charges. It was the largest prisoner swap since Joe Biden took office. A pair of twin brothers in Texas have been charged with manslaughter for shooting at a group of migrants who'd stopped to get water near the U.S.-Mexico border. One of the migrants died. Another was injured. One of the brothers, Michael Shepard, was the warden at a privately run immigration jail, the West Texas Detention Facility, which has been accused of abuse. He was fired after the attack. British Prime Minister Liz Truss has scrapped a plan to lower taxes for Britain's highest earners. The proposal, which was announced just 10 days ago, sparked protests and a warning from the International Monetary Fund. On Sunday, hundreds of thousands of people in Britain took to the streets in a protest organized by the Enough is Enough campaign. A lot of workers and a lot of people that are working in this country have had enough. They've had enough of not working full time and not being able to pay their energy bills and not be able to put food on the table. The U.S. Supreme Court begins its new term today with a historic first as Justice Katanji Brown Jackson will become the first black female justice to ever hear a Supreme Court case. Key issues before the court this term include affirmative action and voting rights. And indigenous activist and actress Sashin Littlefeather has died at the age of 75. In 1973, she took the stage at the Oscars on behalf of Marlon Brando, who boycotted the ceremony to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans. Some members of the audience booed and mocked Littlefeather as she addressed the awards ceremony wearing traditional Apache clothing. He very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry. Excuse me. And on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. 
The actor John Wayne reportedly attempted to remove Sasheen Littlefeather from the stage, but was restrained by six security guards. Clint Eastwood mocked Littlefeather later in the ceremony. She died on Sunday. In August, the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures finally issued an apology for her treatment nearly 50 years ago. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. When we come back, Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, has threatened a coup if he didn't win Sunday's election against former president Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. While Lula won a plurality, he did not get 50 percent of the vote. Now they head to a runoff. We'll speak with Noam Chomsky and Vijay Prashad about the significance of this election, as well as what's happening in Ukraine. Stay with us. by the indigenous Brazilian musician Dejuena Chicuna. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Brazil's presidential election is headed to a runoff. In the first round of voting Sunday, Brazil's former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva of the Leftist Workers' Party, won 48 percent of the vote, beating Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, who received 43 percent of the vote. It was a closer result than many projected, and Bolsonaro-backed candidates also perform well in other races. Lula addressed supporters Sunday night. To the disgrace of some, I have 30 more days to campaign. I love campaigning. I love going out on the street. I love rallying. I love getting on a truck. I love discussing with Brazilian society. This will be the first chance for us to have a face-to-face -face debate with the President of the Republic, to find out if he will continue to tell lies or if he will, at least once in his life, speak the truth to the Brazilian people. There is widespread fear in Brazil that Bolsonaro could stage a coup to stay in power. Already, this has been the violent election, most violent election campaign Brazil has seen in years. Bolsonaro spoke Sunday. We are going to form good alliances for us to win the election. I can't talk of it at the moment. While Lula won a plurality in Sunday's election, he did not win 50 percent in the 11-person race. So he now faces a runoff against Bolsonaro October 30th. Lula's running on a platform to reduce inequality, preserve the Amazon rainforest, and protect Brazil's indigenous communities after Bolsonaro dismantled environmental and indigenous protections.
On Friday, Democracy Now!'s Juan Gonzalez and I spoke about all of this with Vijay Prashad and Noam Chomsky, co-authors of a new book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. They've both been following the race in Brazil closely. Vijay Prashad is the director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. He joined us from New York, but was just back from Brazil. And in Minas Gerais, Brazil, Noam Chomsky uh, spoke to us. He's a world-renowned political dissident, linguist and author, laureate professor in the Department of Linguistics at the University of Arizona and professor emeritus at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, for he, where he taught for more than half a century. I began by asking Professor Chomsky what the election— between Brazil's far-right president, Bolsonaro, and the former president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, means not just for Brazil, but for the world. It is very significant, not only for Brazil, but for the world in Brazil in many respects. But one of them is what you mentioned, the fate of the Amazon. Uh, most of the Amazon region is in Brazil. The uh, of the two candidates, uh, one of them, the current president, Bolsonaro, uh, is basically committed to destroying the Amazon. Uh, under his years in office, there's been sharp acceleration with his approval of illegal logging, uh, mining, agribusiness, tax on the indigenous reserves. Uh, it's been known for some time that sooner or later, uh, if uh, destruction of the forest continues, there won't be enough moisture produced to reproduce the Amazon. It'll turn to savannah. Uh, regrettably, that's beginning to happen. Uh, Satellite and other studies have shown that in corners of the Amazon in Brazil, it's already happening. Uh, tipping points may be coming soon, which would be irreversible. That's a catastrophe for Brazil, but in fact for the entire world. The Amazon forests are one of the major carbon sinks, and it'll be soon become a carbon producer. Uh, that's devastating for the world. And those are Bolsonaro's policies. So for that reason alone, if, the, if he manages somehow to maintain power, perhaps by a military coup, uh, uh, it'll be a, a disaster for the world. We might point out that there's a counterpart coming in the United States, the the Republican Party, of course, is a 100% denialist party committed to maximizing the use of fossil fuels, eliminating the regulations that somehow mitigate their effects. So they come back into power, uh, again, hurtling towards disaster. So for those reasons alone, the next couple of months are of extreme significance. There are many other factors. Uh, the uh, business community in Brazil doesn't like Bolsonaro. He's too vulgar and uh, uh, 
corrupt, but uh, they like Lula even less because of his social democratic policies. So where they'll stand is not so clear. Also unclear is the nature of the military. Uh, the police, the various branches of the police, tend to be quite supportive of Bolsonaro. Uh, the military is split. Uh, there's been a heavy military component in his government, unprecedented in fact, but other elements of the top military command have been uh, ambiguous about their status. So that's naturally a reason for concern. But Bolsonaro has said openly and clearly uh, that uh, basically following Trump's line, probably with Trump's advisors on his, at his elbow, saying that either he will win the election or the election was fraudulent and he won't accept it. In fact, he called all of the ambassadors to a special meeting to tell them that, which shocked the diplomatic community and did lead to negative responses. Whether he'll keep to that or not, nobody really knows. So there is a kind of background tension in the atmosphere. But I should say that from the little that we can see on the streets in the community, it looks pretty normal. So if there are concerns, they're not very openly expressed. There are, last night, there was a major debate, uh, went on for hours. Uh, there's demonstrations and so on. So the whole matter is very much in people's minds, clearly. But uh, the, if the polls are anywhere near accurate, uh, Lula might win on the first round, but almost certainly would on the second. But then there's the open question of how uh, Bolsonaro and the forces behind him would would react to this. So that's pretty much the current situation. Well, Noam Chomsky, uh, following up on that, the, uh, the the significance politically for Latin America and the world of a, of a, a Lula victory, given the fact that we've seen now Latin America go from the early pink tide of the early 2000s, then there was a resurgence of right-wing governments and lawfare actions throughout the region. And now we're seeing almost every major country uh, in uh, Latin America uh, voting in uh, left-wing governments, so Mexico, Colombia, uh, Venezuela, Ar Argentina, Peru, uh, and Brazil, of course, is the largest country. This is a region with uh, no nuclear weapons, with no major uh, armed conflicts uh, uh, in the region right now. What would Lula coming to victory mean for the consolidation of uh, this, uh, this left-wing trend in Latin America? Yes, you can add Chile to the list. Uh, uh, Brazil is, of course, the largest, most important uh, country in South and Latin America. And the direction in which Brazil goes is sure to have a major impact on these tendencies that you describe. Of course, they're bitterly opposed by the 
most of the business world, by the uh, invest, international investment community, uh, what happens in Brazil could be certain to have a large-scale effect on whether these this mildly left social democratic uh, tendency will continue to develop and evolve. That's very important on the international scene as well. It'll, for example, affect the character of uh, uh, BRICS, Brazil, Russia, uh, uh, India, China, South Africa, now Indonesia, uh, developing for independent, possibly independent force in global affairs. Now, during the early years of the century when uh, Lula was in power, uh, he managed to uh, give uh, the BRICS uh, alignment a significant role in, early, in world affairs. In fact, Brazil became perhaps the most respected uh, country inter- internationally under Lula and his uh, foreign minister, Celso Amorim. And if he returns to office, that could give an impetus to uh, the develop the further development of BRICS as a quite significant element in international affairs. That's connected with much broader tendencies, uh, much broader issues about uh, multipolarity and unipolarity in international affairs. Uh, the United States, of course, is working hard to maintain what's called a, a, a unilateral world order. Uh, other elements in the world, uh, other components of the world are not going along with that. Uh, Ukraine is a central part of that issue. About 90% of the countries of the world are not going along with the uh, U.S.-U.K., position on Ukraine, which is basically uh, continue the war to weaken Russia and no negotiations. Uh, Even in Europe, like in Germany, that's not accepted. About over two, three quarters of the German population wants to move to negotiations now. Uh, All of these things are taking place in the background, and what's happening in Brazil will have a significant impact on the direction in which they go. So there are many large issues at stake, also just domestically in Brazil. Uh, Brazil has extraordinary inequality, kind of like the United States in that respect. Uh, Enormous amount. It's potentially a very rich country. A century ago, it was called uh, the Colossus of the South. It's never been realized part because of the avarice of the uh, wealthy sector, which has basically no commitment to the country. Uh, And that will move in one or the other direction, depending on the outcome of this election. So there is quite a lot at stake locally in Brazil, in Latin America altogether, as you mentioned, and even globally, because of the role of the Latin American countries, Brazil in the lead in uh, uh, setting the stage for the, the next phase of global order. 
Noam Chomsky, on the issue of Bolsonaro um, perhaps not accepting election results—and he is in charge of the elections now as president—earlier in the campaign, he said, only God will remove me from power. The army is on our side. It's an army that doesn't accept corruption, that doesn't accept fraud. Um, are you concerned that he will not accept the election? And also, how much has Trump and his rejection of the elections and spreading the big lie influence Bolsonaro, empowered him? Well, Trump is uh, his ideal, and there's good reason to suppose that Trump's circle of advisors mm -hmm. is playing a role in Bolsonaro's current decision-making, as they pretty clearly did in the 2018 election, which he managed to win. But uh, on reasons we don't have time to go through, uh, so uh, he might try to follow the Trump model. Uh, his his statement about uh, only God can remove him is a Trump-like appeal to a large sector of his voting base. Uh, a large sector of his voting base is evangelicals, uh, right wing. Christian groups, much as in the United States and Trump. So references to God are obligatory uh, charges that the PT, uh, the Lewis Party, will undermine the church, uh, all of these uh, uh, charges which we're familiar with in the United States are part of the Bolsonaro campaigning. Uh, what he'll do, we don't know. No, they're... Uh, the large majority of the population in Brazil, according to the polls, is concerned, seriously concerned, that there might be violence uh, at the top time of the elections or in the aftermath. So this concern, there's reason for it. Uh, the alliance with the Republican Party, the Trump-owned Republican Party, is pretty clear. It's not hidden. So there are similarities in the United States and Brazil uh, that are certainly worth uh, merit attention. Uh, Vijay Prashad, I'd like to bring you into the discussion here on Brazil. Um, you were there recently. Uh, your assessment of the importance of this election and also um, to what degree is the, is the electorate voting for Lula uh, and the Workers' Party or uh, pre predominantly for Lula? There have been some reports that the, his popularity is much greater than that of the Workers' Party because of all of the uh, years of corruption scandals that occurred while the party was in power. I'm wondering your views on those two things. It's great to be with you, um, and it's great to have Noam from, from Minas Gerais. 
Um, the first thing I'd like to say is Lula is an extraordinary person, an extraordinary campaigner, an extraordinary politician. Um, you know, these things matter. I covered Lula's first election campaign when he first won um, in the 2000s, was in Brazil during his second um, uh, presidency, and covered this year uh, some of his rallies and public appearances, and also had the opportunity to briefly speak with him. He is an extraordinary person. He's extraordinarily charismatic, touches the hearts of people. Uh, this is what I suppose in the United States is called retail politics. Also, Lula is this time running to the left of Lula, the president. He's made it very clear um, that questions of social justice will be at the forefront of his presidency. He's made it clear that he once again wants to have Brazil be an important player in the process of South American integration and in the revival of the BRICS. Now, it's really important that we concentrate on the attempts to undermine Lula. It's the military, of course, but got to pay attention to the fact, as Juan said earlier, this issue of lawfare is on the table. One of the things I learned in talking to Fernando Haddad, who ran for president in 2018 and is now running to be the governor of Sao Paulo state, what Haddad told me is that the key issue in this election is, yes, to elect Lula, but also to get an impeachment proof majority in the legislature. Because what happened to President Dilma Rousseff is on the minds of everybody. You can win an election, you can push an agenda, but you'll get removed by a legislature which is committed to a very right-wing politics. And to somehow drive a impeachment-proof legislature is important. And that's where the uh, assessment about the Workers' Party comes in. Is the party going to be strong enough to elect its candidates across the country, or will it again rely merely on winning the presidency? So that first issue of winning in the legislature is key. You know, when Lula comes to office this time, he has already pledged to start a conversation about, for instance, a Latin American currency called the Sur. This was tried previously under, under Hugo Chavez called the Sucre. But the Sur, if Brazil puts its considerable resources behind it, it's going to be a really important development for Latin America. And, you know, we need to understand that, as Noam said, the mood in the world is contrary to being pushed around by the United States or its allies. People are looking for some other kind of leadership. And the respect that Lula has, uh, which the other leaders, let's say, in the BRICS countries don't have, that respect that Lula has. Lula is the first Brazilian president whose name is known in other countries in the global south. He's going to leverage that respect um, to drive a multilateral agenda in world affairs. I think that's going to be of great significance and importance. Again, when he came to power in the 2000s, the mood was not like that around the world. Now we see the mood in South Africa, even in India, governed by a right-wing government. Um, the government has said, look, we are not going to involve ourselves in Europe's wars. We have our own problems. We have our own conflicts. And I believe that a presidency from Lula, a revival of the BRICS, will allow some of that mood to be captured by somebody who comes to um, world affairs with a great 
deal of of uh, legitimacy and and love and and in a sense uh, respect. And Vijay, following up uh, on that, the uh, the issue of the uh, a greater, a more multilateral world that that you mentioned. Uh, one of the things that's happened in Latin America in the recent decades is in the increasing visibility and investment of uh, China uh, uh, throughout Latin America, allowing many of these governments, whether of the right or the left, to be more independent of, of financing and loans and investment from uh, the U.S. and Europe. I'm wondering your sense of, again, if a Lula victory, what would happen in terms of this trend of China getting more involved in Latin America's economies? Well, it's important to say that even during the presidency of Jair Bolsonaro, um, China continued to be a major trading partner with Brazil. And Mr. Bolsonaro was very careful not to come out with any kind of frontal attack on China. Uh, let's be quite clear that the arrival of Chinese commercial economic ties with most countries in Latin America is inevitable. It's clear, you know, there's a reason why a country like Argentina joined China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, that's because the Chinese have investment capital available. The Chinese have a large market for the commodities produced in Latin America. In a way, China is offering much more to these countries in terms of trade, development, investment, and so on than the United States. That's just a fact. The question is that in the last period, from Trump onward, the United States has attempted to tell countries in Latin America that they should stop trading with China. This is what happened with uh, El Salvador, for instance, over a deal for a Pacific port. The United States tried to impose on the government of El Salvador and, in fact, succeeded uh, to break a deal with the Chinese. Interesting thing is China is not telling anybody to break deals with the United States. In fact, Argentina, a Belt and Road partner, went back to the IMF this year. A very poor deal, by the way, and, and it's a deal that requires far more scrutiny, once more austerity on the Argentinian people. But Lula has made it clear they're going to continue in that sense, Bolsonaro's policy of trading with China. But there'll be a kind of friendlier attitude to China. And, and I, I'm very much hopeful that if there's a revitalization of the BRICS, this attempt to demonize countries in Eurasia, particularly China, uh, will find less of an audience than it finds even now. Um, it's quite unfortunate that the United States has ramped up a kind of demonization policy, suggesting that, you know, the Chinese are out there to steal people's privacy and so on. This is not a credit line of argument in countries where the Chinese have come, put money on the table through the People's Bank of China, done currency swaps and so on, and said, you don't need to do austerity. Here's investment money. It's not credible when the United States comes there and says, you know, China is here to steal your house. Um, that's not a credible argument. But it does create a lot of instability. It creates a lot of tension um, for countries. And I think if Lula comes to power, or not just Lula, we see this already with Gustavo Petro in Colombia. You know, when people come to power of that ilk uh, who want an independent foreign policy for their country, they understand that next year, 2023, is the 200th anniversary of the Monroe Doctrine. They want to go beyond the Monroe Doctrine. You remember, Joe Biden said that Latin America is not the United States' backyard, it's the United States' front yard. For God's sake, President Biden, Latin America is nobody 
somebody's yard. These are sovereign countries that must be permitted to produce their own relations, whether it's for trade or political relations. The United States cannot continue uh, to essentially, as Noam says, be the godfather and tell countries what to do. Vijay Prashad and Professor Noam Chomsky, who's currently in Brazil, co-authors of the new book, The Withdrawal. The Brazilian runoff election between Lula and Bolsonaro will take place October 30th. Next up, we'll talk with them about Ukraine in 30 seconds. Pensando no povo brasileiro, no sufoco que passamos cada ano que passa. Promessa nos faz, mas ninguém acha graça. Mas eu acredito que há uma solução. Alcançando o objetivo com o nosso coração. Então vai lá, cidadão. Faça por você, não se sinta um derrotado e lute pra sobreviver. Lute pra sobreviver. Moro no Brasil, não sei se eu moro muito bem ou muito mal. Só sei que agora faço parte do país. A inteligência é fundamental. Farofa Carioca. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We continue our conversation with Vijay Prashad and Professor Noam Chomsky, who have co-authored the new book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to them Friday, just as the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, was holding a signing ceremony to mark the annexation of four areas of occupied Ukraine. Later that day, Ukraine would apply for NATO membership. I asked Professor Chomsky about U.S. media coverage of of the Ukraine war and how it's getting it wrong. To begin with, suggest a considerable measure of caution with the way things are being reported in the United States. To, to take one quite significant case, uh, there's been a large amount of, uh, you can say, euphoria over the claim that uh, major countries in the world are very important country of the global south, of course. Uh, it's claimed that uh, Modi, president of India, uh, censured uh, Putin at a meeting in uh, Samarkand, uh, where he told Putin that India will, does not support the Russian uh, position. If you look, I took the trouble of looking this up on the uh, Indian government uh, official website. What happened is quite different. Uh, the Western propaganda has seized upon uh, half a dozen words in which Modi said, war is not the answer. And that was taken to be a break with Russia. If you read the rest of the text, it's practically a love letter to Putin about how wonderful our relations are and how they'll get even better and how supportive we are of you and so on. Now, that part was left out of, which is practically the whole message, was left out of the Western reporting, of the U.S. reporting. So you have to be, it's one example of many, of uh, considerable care that has to be taken. The fact is that internationally, at least, the United States and Britain are pretty isolated on this. Uh, Europe is sort of going along, but the population is not supportive of that position, as I mentioned, over the most important country, Germany, over three quarters is uh, in favor of moving to uh, uh, negotiations right away, same in Slovakia, President Macron of uh, France, uh, who's been the most uh, dedicated to seeking to find a 
negotiated settlement has recently uh, reiterated his belief that though the prospects diminish as the war continues, there are still openings. Uh, the United States is, and Britain, its lackey at this point, are uh, pretty much isolated in their commitment to continuing the war, uh, whatever the effects, in order to severely weaken Russia. Uh, the, uh, uh, are there still negotiation possibilities? There's only one way to find out. That's to try. If you refuse to try, of course, there's no option, no possibilities. Uh, there's so little reporting about this in the United States that one can say little with confidence, but we do have uh, credible information that there were uh, Russia-Ukraine negotiations under uh, Turkish auspices in April, which may have been getting somewhere uh, as soon as they were announced. Uh, Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister of England, flew to Ukraine and apparently informed Ukraine that the West, meaning the United States and Britain, would not favor negotiations. He was followed directly by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, uh, who presumably uh, gave the message that it is stand, he's repeated over and over, and that is now official U.S. policy, that the war must continue to weaken Russia severely, uh, and it follows that no time for negotiations. Well, none of this can be said with certainty because there is so little commentary and reporting, and what there is is highly, often highly distorted, as in the important example that I just gave. But uh, the fact is that we're sooner or later, there will have to be some kind of negotiated settlement unless one side or the other just capitulates. That's virtually logic. Uh, the uh, if the, the longer the war goes on, the longer it's maintained, the uh, the more the prospects for a diplomatic settlement diminish. That's almost automatic. So before the invasion, there seemed to be pretty good prospects for uh, a settlement, or more or less in the framework of the. Minsk Agreement uh, under the auspices of France and Germany, to which Russia and Ukraine theoretically accepted, though didn't implement it. The U.S. role was, to put it mildly, not constructive in that respect. It's an understatement. Uh, as the war continued, there are prospects do diminish, but they're still there. Late March. Uh, President Zelensky produced some proposals which are not very far from the, the Macron proposals for settlement. Didn't get anywhere. There was the April case. Uh, we don't know what's happening since. The longer the war persists, the more destruction and devastation there will be, the more what's called collateral damage elsewhere. 
massive starvation because of the closing off of Black Sea exports. There's some relaxation of that, but we have little information about it. Threat of nuclear war increases, and perhaps most significantly of all, and least discussed, is the fact that as the war continues, the limited efforts to deal with the overwhelming crisis of climate destruction, those reverse instead of moving to limit fossil fuels. What's happening is expansion of fossil fuel production, exuberance in the offices of ExxonMobil, Chevron, and the rest, uh, opening new fields for development, uh, uh, expansion of uh, uh, reduction of restrictions, uh, uh, search for new sources of oil. Uh, some of what's happening is, I mean, this, this means basically the end of organized human life on Earth. We're not talking about something minor. We have a narrow window in which the severe problems of heating the climate can be dealt with. As you close that window more and more, the less are the chances of survival of organized human life on Earth. That's what we're facing. As I say, sometimes what's happening is simply surreal. You hardly can find words to describe it. It take uh, just the last couple of weeks, uh, new scientific reports appeared uh, with regard to the eastern Mediterranean, not very far from Ukraine. They found that uh, uh, projections about uh, what was going to happen in the region were way off, much too conservative. Now, new studies indicate that by the end of the century, uh, heating in the eastern Mediterranean region will be about twice as high as what was thought before, uh, 5 degrees Celsius, 10 degrees Fahrenheit. That's uh, right at the level, begin, it reaches the level of survival. And of course, it doesn't stop there. Uh, meanwhile, Israeli uh, climatologists were quite good, discovered that their own projections of rise in sea level were way off. They were dire enough. It turns out they were far from accurate. Uh, it's going to be much worse than that. They predict that by mid-century, uh, there will be a meter of sea level rise. Uh, at the end of the century, two and maybe two to two and a half meters. Uh, the effects are indescribable. You think about that for the two country, the countries there, Egypt, uh, Israel, Lebanon, it's, uh, can't even describe it. Meanwhile, what's happening? Israel and Lebanon are squabbling over who will have the right to administer the coup de grace, literally. They're squabbling over who will control the fossil fuel resources on their maritime border. So who, in other words, will have the opportunity to destroy the two countries while they sink underwater? 
That's what's happening before our eyes. Other areas of the world as well. Going back to Ukraine, the longer the war continues, the more the window closes. We move towards increasing fossil fuel production when we must be minimizing, ending them quickly. That's the situation that we are facing. Meanwhile, going back to Ukraine, the United States and Britain following along obediently are keeping to the principle that the war must continue to severely weaken Russia, meaning no negotiated settlements with all the consequences that follow. That's what should be uppermost in our minds, not only because of its significance, but because of all the factors involved in this complex affair. That's the one that we have a possibility of influence. We can't influence what happens in the Kremlin. We can influence what happens in the United States. Again, that should be uppermost in our minds. Uh, Vijay Prashad, I wanted to ask you in terms, uh, not only in terms of the war in U Ukraine, but uh, your, your book deals with interventions of the U.S., uh, your new book, Interventions of the U.S. Uh, Throughout the World, uh, uh, Afghanistan, Syria. Can you talk about, here we have a situation where less than uh, about six months after the U.S. exit from Afghanistan and supposedly the end of our forever wars, we're embroiled now in the funding and financing of yet another uh, a conflict that is shaking the world. Uh, most Americans don't realize most of this aid money is only going to to uh, buy weapons from the U.S. war industry. Uh, and, of course, we have on the horizon the next conflict with China. Uh, talk about this forever war mentality of the United States and the influence of the Pentagon on how the media uh, portrays many of these conflicts. Juan, let's just look at some numbers first. Um, last year, the calculation was that the world's powers spend $2 trillion, that's with a T, on weapons. The United States by itself spends nearly a trillion dollars. If you add the money in the Department of Energy budget for nuclear weapons and so on, a trillion dollars, $2 trillion globally. Meanwhile, the total budget for the United Nations is $3 billion. That's with a B. We spend trillions of dollars on weapons and only low billions on peace building. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I want more people to know about these numbers. Um, there's a habit of war making. Look, you can't take out Ukraine, lift it out of the earth and put it in Iowa. Ukraine is going to have to live next to Russia. It's going to have to live there. That's where it is. The Ukrainians and the Russians have to come to some kind of agreement. The, uh, you know, the, the kind of way in which um, the rhetoric in this war has accelerated, going back to 2014, that rhetorical acceleration is something that even the Ukrainians rejected when Vladimir Zelensky came before them in the election because 
because after all, Mr. Zelensky came to office vowing to make a peace agreement with the Russians because even he recognizes Ukraine has to live next to Russia. But the United States saw Ukraine as a kind of loose nail under which they place their weapons billions of dollars of weapons, much more than the annual budget of the um, of the United Nations in order to egg Russia on. And by the way, it's not just a matter of Ukraine and Russia coming to some understanding because they do have to live next to each other. And as Noam was saying, in April of this year, they had an interim agreement, which looked a lot like Minsk too. But the West said no. The point, as U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said, is to weaken Russia. You see, the question isn't Ukraine and Russia by itself. Um, it's also the United States and Russia. So when the United States withdrew from the Intermediate Nuclear Force Range Treaty in 2019, that was the end, basically, of most of the arms control treaties between the United States and Russia. In fact, since 2019, we're living without a security guarantee arrangement between these major nuclear powers, the United States and Russia. No wonder that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has brought the doomsday clock to within 100 seconds of midnight. You know, it began at seven minutes to midnight. We are now at 100 seconds. And the reason the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists gives for this is the unilateral withdrawal by the United States from basically the entire architecture of arms control with Russia in particular. So there's got to be pressure on the Biden administration, not only to back off and allow Zelensky and Putin to talk, uh, to allow them to have some kind of peace agreement that's, you know, with dignity for all sides, but also the United States needs to go back to the table with the Russians and talk to them. You know, if the United States can talk to the Saudis, in fact, pal up with the Saudis, why can't they talk to the Russians? It's ridiculous to say, you know, the Russians are not going to, they're not a, a good partner, they're not going to live on agreements and so on. Look who's talking. The United States is the country that unilaterally walked away from the Iran nuclear deal. Not the Iranians, it was the United States. It's a bit rum to now say that, well, the Russians are not a reliable negotiating partner. At least try it. You know, for God's sake, for the sake of humanity, we need these major powers with a lot of firepower in their pocket to talk to each other. You can't turn to the United Nations and say, will you do something? As I said, the UN budget is $3 billion. You've got to strengthen peace building in the world and weaken war making. That has to be part of the commitment of sensitive people around the planet, whether in Russia, in Ukraine, the United States, certainly in the United Kingdom. You both talk about allowing Russia and Ukraine to negotiate, but um, how does one do that? And talk about exactly what the U.S. can do now, Professor Chomsky. What the U.S. can do is stop acting to prevent negotiations. For a long time, there's no time to review the record. But the position of the United States has been to try to undermine possibilities of negotiations. Professor, 
Ski, world-renowned political dissident and linguist, and Vijay Prashad, director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. They've co-authored the new book, The Withdrawal, Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, and the Fragility of U.S. Power. Noam Chomsky was speaking to us from Brazil. We'll play more of their interview later this week. That does it for our show. On Wednesday, I'll be speaking at Penn State Harrisburg at 7 p.m., and on Thursday, October 6, at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, at 4 p.m. Democracy Now! currently is accepting applications for two full-time jobs, an associate digital editor and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Stay safe.